Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. I am your host, Dion. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. As I sort of hinted to you during episode 53 last week, there was a fair bit of news this week regarding some of the biggest US companies because it's earnings season over in the US. Well, it's earnings season, I guess, technically here as well in Australia, but uh, some of the biggest companies in the world uh, posted their numbers and outlook uh, during the week. And we're going to touch base on a few of those. We're going to look at Apple, we'll check in with Tesla and Google as well, or Alphabet, their holding company. We're also going to have a little bit of a look at some macroeconomic news first and foremost. Um, There was some updated data coming through from the ABS this week regarding CPI in Australia, so the Consumer Price Index, so our uh, primary measure of inflation. And that's important because we've been speaking about this expected rise in inflation, the way that's affecting the bond market here in Australia, uh, what banks are thinking about that in terms of their home loan interest rates, uh, more so the sort of five or four and five year uh, home loan interest rates. So we'll have a look at that. And I might also touch base with the iron ore price in Australia because, well, sorry, not the iron ore price in Australia, the just the iron ore price in general, but how Australia has continued to benefit from that. Uh, because the iron ore price is continuing to go up. So we will take a look at that as well. But as always, if you do have questions for the show, you can shoot them through to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. We had a question last episode, so that was great. I like doing that every now and again. So if there's something that's bothering you, if there's something we've even spoken about in the show that you want a little bit more clarification on or you want to explore a different angle, Maybe you have some feedback, send that through to that Gmail account and we can talk about it on the show. But plenty to discuss this week, so we won't muck around any further. Thank you for tuning into the Market Pulse podcast. This is episode 54, the Coffer edition. Okay, before we get into the crux of the show, we will touch on how the markets went for the week that was. So the ASX 200 was down, it was down half a percent for the week and the NASDAQ was down 0.4% for the week. All right, so let's kick it off with a bit of macro news this week. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we saw inflation data released. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics reporting that CPI, so the Consumer Price Index, rose 0.6% for the March 2021 quarter. And if you take an annual look at that, so if you take the 12 months to March 2021, then CPI rose 1.1%. And that was against a consensus um, amongst economists for it to actually be closer to about 1.4%. So it it did actually come in lower than the consensus expectation last week. And I will just sort of draw on the ABS's data directly of some of the biggest movers 
or the biggest shakers that impacted that CPI figure. So firstly, I let's start with, so food and non-alcoholic beverages rose 0.4% overall. Within that, the biggest movers were beef and veal, up 3.7%, which ABS say rose due to favorable weather, uh, seeing farmers rebuilding herds after some pretty significant drought conditions over the last few years, which reduced meat supply. They also noted takeaway foods and restaurant meals up about half a percent each. And that's mostly attributed to the easing of lockdown restrictions, you know, people getting out and dining in restaurants and cafes and allowing um, restaurants and cafes to continue to do takeaway. And that's also allowed restaurants to pass through increases in the actual cost of those services. Uh, Another one they note is in their clothing and footwear category within the CPI index. They, or they being the ABS site, that accessories rose 7.3% due to elevated consumer confidence, but also demand enabled jewelers to pass through high precious metal prices. So uh, mostly that that clothing category is, is attributed to the rise in accessories, particularly. They also point out automotive fuel. Um, I'm sure you probably noticed this just from a personal perspective, that rose 8.7% as there's been a continued recovery in global oil prices. Uh, Because remember last year, we saw some pretty significant falls in those oil prices. And and that was pretty apparent as well at the uh, pump when you went to uh, fill up your car. So they actually broke it down the way automotive fuel rose per month. Uh, They said 1.7% in January, 2.7% in February, and March up 7%. So maybe you have noticed that. I'm, I'm not sure. But... So that is a, an idea of, I guess, some of the bigger movers and shakers within that CPI index that help push the figures in either direction. Um, there's a couple of things to, I guess, mention off the back of that. So, and where this is actually playing in, I, I note that uh, Westpac recently actually raised that. So, so they had a quite a cheap four-year fixed mortgage rate in the market. I think it might have been the cheapest amongst the actual big four banks. It was 1.89%. Uh, within the last, I think it was in the last five days, I actually lifted that by 0.3. So it's gone up to 2.19%. So that, and that's pretty in line with other big banks like CBA. And so that's an expectation from those banks that interest rates will come, say, four, four years will actually be higher than what they are now. And I mentioned that because the RBA speak to this idea that they're not going to actually look at raising interest rates for a few years and they're looking at an actual sustained, consistent uh, inflation closer to around 2 to 3% annually before they start to raise interest rates. The banks, though, of course, in the way that they're raising those rates, betting that interest rates by then, by, say, 2024, will actually be higher than what they are now. So this week's release of the CPI certainly, I would say, counteracted or hit back against the idea that there would be an extremely sharp uptick in inflation. I will caveat that by saying that economists are actually expecting that the June quarter measure of CPI, which we'll be able to talk about in a few months' time, is actually expected to show quite a sharp uptick in annualized inflation. But kind of like a one-off anomaly sharp uptick in inflation. Again, that doesn't 
mean that the RBA changes its stance because their whole point is seeing a measured sustained rate of inflation, not just significant upticks, just one-offs and things like that. But that target zone that I just mentioned that how the RBA would like it to be in 2 to 3%, I mean, it hasn't been at that for, I don't know, five, six years or so. And we can talk about the argument of whether they need to adjust their goals and expectations around what inflation should or should not be. But that, separate to that, what the current data is showing is that we're still quite a, uh, quite a fair bit off of actually hitting that target range of what the RBA wants. I note that I am on record as expressing some healthy skepticism that inflation will come back in as much as a meaningful way as commentators or some commentators have suggested. For me, or to me, the employment market or the unemployment rate suggests to me that there's still a fair bit of slack in the actual job market. And whilst that slack exists, it's hard to see any kind of meaningful uh, wage growth pressure that might actually therefore impact inflation or put pressure on inflation figures. But that's my opinion. Um, I totally understand that this is against qualified economists, but <laughs> that's how I see it at the moment. But And so, so in some ways, that data that's come out this quarter tends to lend itself to that. But again, it's only a quarter data. I, I will be watching this every quarter over the coming year or so because it's interesting to see whether there will be any kind of meaningful inflationary push that could actually change my opinion there. But at the moment, I still keep that healthy skepticism. Uh, and just to, I guess, clarify a couple definitions related to what we're speaking about, you'll often find in any kind of writing or uh, news regarding inflation, you'll see the, the words headline inflation or core inflation or the trimmed mean inflation, which relates to the core inflation uh, thrown about in articles. It's important to sort of just understand the difference. So the Reserve Bank looks at a measure of what's called trimmed mean, which is like a core inflation as opposed to headline inflation. Headline inflation is just merely the change in the consumer price index. So uh, consumer price index, like I, I gave you a few examples how different things are made up in it, like food or restaurant spending or clothing or fuel prices, like what we uh, fill our cars up with and how those things change quarter to quarter or year to year. Now, core inflation or trimmed mean will look to adjust the figure slightly or take out any kind of significant movers within that that might skew the results. So for example, let's say the inflation figure came in and it was say a lot higher than expected, but when you actually broke it down, you found that it was because fuel prices, maybe for some due to some global event or or shortage of actual supply had caused fuel prices in Australia to spike up really significantly, therefore skewing the overall CPI. That would be something that the RBA would be trying to adjust for in their trimmed mean uh, inflationary figure, so that they're you know giving you a, at least a better idea of how overall the CPI index uh, changed and not letting it be skewed by anomalies such as that. That was just an example. That's not what happened in our last quarter, but that's why they'll refer to things like core inflation or the, or the trimmed mean inflation. The other indicator I'm just going to quickly touch on is the iron ore price now. Still continuing to climb up um, as it did 
through 20 or especially in the latter half of 2020 and into 2021. It is now almost $185 or US dollars a ton. I think quite a long time ago, probably last year, we mentioned one of the big uh, reasons behind the iron ore price uh, increasing is there's firstly the demand. Um, There's quite a healthy appetite from China for iron ore. But one of the other reasons as to why the iron ore price has increased so significantly over the last 12 months especially is due to the, I don't know if they're the, technically the biggest, I think they are, but uh, there's a Brazilian mining firm, Vale, who is one of the biggest, we'll say one of the biggest iron ore producers in the world. Uh, they have, over the past 12 to 18 months, had their capacity output uh, significantly uh, reduced on a number of sites. So therefore reducing the amount of iron ore that they can output, which has significantly helped Australia's iron ore mining firms because not only has that caused upward pressure on iron ore prices but it has also led to there being fewer uh, companies around the world to do business with in order to get that iron ore and that has filtered through to pretty recent dividend payouts from the likes of BHP, Fortescue Metal that have been absolutely record-breaking just due to that extremely high iron ore price. The latest reporting from Vale themselves out of Brazil is that they don't expect their production to return to its full capacity until the end of 2022, suggesting then, of course, that providing demand uh, keeps up, then that iron ore price could continue to rise uh, closer to even the $200 a tonne mark. And that's interesting. I listening to the Money Cafe guys, so James Kirby and Alan Cole, they've mentioned this on a fair few episodes over the past year, that in the Australian government's budget papers, so in the Treasury figures, you know, they have to operate with assumptions of how certain, say, commodities will be priced over the coming year, and they factor that into their assumptions on their budgetary outlook. And their assumption in their figures has been that the iron ore price is 55 US dollars a ton and it's you know it's like three times that at the moment and that's and and they they probably left it at 55 dollars a ton expecting that the the current massive spike in iron ore prices wouldn't sustain for very long uh, but it has sustained for quite a while and it may even continue to sustain over the next 12 months and many economists are actually pointing that treasury will likely uh, reflect that in their upcoming budget papers uh, you know, increasing the actual expectation of where the, the iron ore price will be, uh, which also then in turn affects uh, their estimate of the actual government deficit position, which uh, will be worth keeping an eye on as well. So that is a bit of an update on CPI and the iron ore price. We're going to go into some company-related stuff. Specifically, we're going to go jump across the pond and over to the US because it was earnings seasons for some of the biggest companies in the world there during the week. Too many really for me to pick out in just a single podcast episode, but I've highlighted what I thought were some of the more interesting tidbits from the news during the week. And this week, the ones that caught my attention were Tesla. Then we're gonna jump and talk about Apple. And then finally, we're gonna end it with Google.
we're going to speed through some of the US earnings for the week. As I mentioned at the end of last show, very big week for many companies reporting their quarterly earnings to the public and they have investor calls. So there's plenty of info to pick at from just their quarterly reports and those investor calls. And the way I've sort of done it this time is I've just taken some sort of high level indicators or bits of information from their quarterlies that I think are worth highlighting and give you a little bit of picture of you know how the quarter has been for these companies but also uh, their future direction and you know the continued impact I think of COVID as well on the operation of these companies and we're going to start with everyone's favorite meme stock Tesla uh, hanging over the company actually going into this earnings call this week was recent news I think from at least probably two weeks ago that a Tesla Model S vehicle, I believe it was in Texas, I think it was outside Houston, it crashed and caught fire and killed two people in the car. And I mention this because as they released their earnings at the start of the week, they actually jumped online for an investor call and Elon Musk was there as well. And there was some questions regarding that actual accident. An interesting point about all this is that the initial police report suggests that One of the passengers was in the front passenger seat and the other person found was in the back seat of the car, which concludes that there was nobody in the driver's seat at all in the Tesla and also leading to, we'll say speculation, but I guess a conclusion from that would suggest that the people that passed away in the accident, uh, so were not only not in the uh, driver's seat of the car, but they were using the Tesla semi-automatic driver assistance feature or it's a beta feature but it's called autopilot to actually drive the vehicle importantly on that regardless of that software existing tesla do specifically say themselves that even if you're using autopilot uh, you have to actually actively supervise the vehicle right you have to be in the driver's seat you have to have your hands on the wheel and i say all of that knowing full well that there would be people out there who would abuse the feature and not do what Tesla is suggesting. In fact, I've seen YouTube videos of idiots driving their Tesla and like going to sleep or whatever, and they just get heavily downvoted on YouTube. But anyway, interesting enough on the earnings call, Elon Musk and one of his engineering executives actually contradicted the emergency services report at the time, which stated that nobody was behind the wheel and I'm just going to take this quote here from Bloomberg. The I don't think this was Elon. I think it was his vehicle engineering exec. He said that various indications such as road condition, distance-driven, seatbelts being unbuckled. Uh, and he mentioned that because if your seatbelts are unbuckled, you can't actually activate the autopilot function. So those indications, plus that the steering wheel was deformed, made it a, quote, likelihood that someone was driving at impact and I bring that up because it's interesting just the development of their technology and their autopilot feature is interesting broadly but one of the problems with Tesla I think in terms of the community is as is I'm fully aware that Tesla fanboys will jump at news like this and argue back that by saying that the media doesn't focus on other car brands in the same way that they focus on Tesla when it comes to accidents And that point is true on paper or at least on face value. If there is an accident on a main road near me, say say if uh, two people had passed away on a road near my house, but it was in a Toyota Hilux or it was in a Suzuki Swift, 
you know, nobody drags out the particular manufacturers to answer questions about the crash or on their earnings call, like brings up that crash to um, ask questions about, uh, especially if the circumstances were clearly a human fault. So like if someone ran a red light, that was clearly a red light or someone was drink driving, you know, nobody turns around to Toyota and says, you know, what the hell is happening here? Uh, you know, we accept this sort of inherent risk that always exists when we leave our house in a car, knowing it could be an accident. And I, you know, I, I understand the criticism from Tesla fans and their sort of cynicism because, you know, at the end of the day, a news site's going to get way more clicks on a headline they write about a Tesla using autopilot crashing and burning than like a Toyota Corolla being in a crash because the Tesla story is just, you know, far more scandalous because it's them. And I understand this argument that, hey, you're just trawling for the Tesla crash story because it's easy clicks and easy ad revenue. But I also think it is different and those stories are worth discussing because you know, they clearly lead the way in EV technology and innovations like autopilot. But there is a difference because autopilot in, in itself does take away some of the human impact and the human role in accidents. So if it is the case that autopilot was being used and these people were in a crash uh, due to, say, an autopilot failure, then that is worth a discussion because that's a very different scenario than, say, a human deciding to punch it through a red light, making a mistake and causing, you know, an accident. But anyway, so, yeah, the interesting thing about all that is that what they said on their earnings call directly contradicts what the emergency services report say what happened. So they're saying that their indicators and their data show that someone was sitting at the steering wheel. And they actually, one of the other facts that they mentioned is that the person, the, 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 this car themselves, because obviously the cars would have a serial number so they know who the owner is and all that kind of stuff, saying that they haven't purchased the pack, the package that allows the autopilot feature, which probably seals the nail in the coffin if that is true that this was what occurred, but it, it, it is odd that there's this huge direct contradiction between what emergency services are saying and Tesla themselves. But anyway, moving forward, I'm going to jump into some indicators from the actual company. Uh, so for Tesla, uh, ch the Chinese market has caught up quite significantly and is accounting for half or a, a little bit over half of Tesla's revenue growth for actually the last two quarters now. And for this quarter, it increased slightly on the last. So that trend is, is going up and the growing popularity of the brand and the car in the Chinese market, uh, especially now that, that uh, revenue growth is more, is, sorry, is bigger rather than in the US. Touching on the news that came out a few months ago, uh, back in February, that Tesla itself forayed into the world of cryptocurrencies and actually purchased 1.5 billion dollars of bitcoin tesla said in their most recently quarterlies that they actually sold 272 million dollars of the asset according to them the reason they did this was to test the liquidity of bitcoin as a viable asset on their books i don't know about that i mean the big <laughs> the bitcoin price since they bought it had continued to go up quite substantially so maybe they just wanted to make a sneaky profit but uh, I read another further article that estimated from their earnings figures that the $1.5 billion Bitcoin investment 
that they made back in February is now, as of say last week, worth about $2.48 billion. So they've certainly had a very good run. In terms of actual vehicle deliveries, Tesla delivered 184,800 vehicles for Q1, so Jan to March 2021, and produced uh, 180,338 vehicles during the same period. Of all the cars they delivered, the vast majority of them were the Model 3 sedan and the sort of newer Model Y SUV style vehicle from Tesla. Another one here, and this is according to CNBC, Tesla grew vehicle sales by more than 100% on a year-over-year basis, but their actual service centers where you can take vehicles for maintenance and repairs, they grew 28% and the mobile fleet of services grew 22%. And this is highlighted as a bit of a issue in that servicing may not be keeping up with the actual volume of vehicles being delivered and causing longer than ideal wait times for repairs among customers. Another thing you'll see when Tesla report their figures is this topic of regulatory credits being discussed in relation to financial figures that Tesla reports. And specifically here, I'll quote from the AFR this week, an article by Timothy Moore, quote, once again, the company needed regulatory credits purchased by other automakers in order to make a profit. Without the US $518 million in credits for the quarter, Tesla would have actually lost money Other automakers buy these credits when they cannot meet emissions and fuel economy standards. So a little bit of an explanation on what that means. So various countries or or say states within the country. So in the US, there are states that have regulatory credits for low emissions or no emission vehicles that are produced, I guess, as a bit of an incentive. And given that Tesla, just that's all they make because they make only electric vehicles, apparently they earn much more credits than they actually need And so they sell these surplus of credits to other auto manufacturers in less than ideal positions who don't have enough credits to meet specific emission standards set by the states. So Tesla actually makes money off the credits and they're highlighted and often categorized to show their impact in the overall revenue. So that article I quoted before is saying, in fact, without those credits for Q1, they would have been in a net loss position. And finally, as a bit of a reference point of where Tesla shares at, so year-to-date, Tesla shares are actually down uh, 2.79% for 2021 so far. Conscious of our time, so I'm going to push on over to Apple. Full disclosure for this part, I do actually own Apple stock, which is actually a new thing for me. I took the plunge to invest directly in US shares for the first time ever. Uh, Around February, I purchased a small holding in Apple. So apart from a small Aussie ETF that I own called the BetaShares NASDAQ 100, which invests in the NASDAQ index in the US. This actual direct holding of Apple is actually amongst the the only US exposure I have uh, amongst the, my shares. And it's actually the first time I've done the whole, you have to, you know, you have to convert Australian dollars to US dollars to actually invest directly in the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And that might be worth a whole episode on one day of exactly how you go about doing that and what platforms you can use. There are heaps of platforms these days. But anyway, I'm highlighting that because this is not a recommendation and just a discussion on Apple. So their top line figures from the results include the company actually posting a March quarter revenue figure of $89.6 billion, which is actually a 54% increase year on year. Uh, Barron's reported that when you get granular on some of the actual specific Apple products, 
the growth in certain devices, uh, device purchases rather was quite incredible and certainly beat general analyst expectations going into earnings seasons. So some of the highlights they point out, Apple reported growth of 66% in iPhone sales, 70% for Macs, 79% for iPads, 25% for wearables, which is like the Apple Watch and like their AirPods, things like that, and 27% growth in services. And that could be like the Apple Plus and I don't know. I don't have an Apple device, so whatever whatever the subscription stuff you can do. So uh, CNBC also highlight that specifically the Macs and iPads uh, had massive jumps year on year for sales and they're right. And if you throw in the iPhone as well, so Macs, iPads and iPhone, there's a few things at play that have driven these really good numbers for Apple. The first is just the general uh, conditions, recovery from the pandemic and lockdowns in the US and the role of stimulus checks hitting people's pockets, uh, combining what, when CNBC reported on this, they use the word super cycle for Apple in that they're in currently in a super cycle where people are upgrading their devices and they're, they're likely upgrading their devices for a number of reasons, which I've uh, picked out a few different points here. So, so one is that simply there's the continued work from home trend that's not not going to go away. And we've seen success from our domestic electronic retailers here, such as JB Hi-Fi and Kogan, you know, smashing sales over the past 12 months. Uh, manufacturers like Apple, who actually produce Macs and iPads, you know, that people can use for work purposes, are also benefiting from the same trend. And another one is that consumers are currently in this cycle where they're upgrading to 5G handsets. And the iPhone 12, which released towards the end of last year, so the current, that's their current handset offering, that's the actual first 5G capable iPhone. So people would be seeking to actually upgrade from their 4G models. The other one that starts to get a little bit technical is the new M1 chips that Apple have made in-house and they've received some uh, pretty good reviews. I haven't used an M1 uh, Apple device myself, all these new M1 devices, but I do follow a few general tech YouTubers who have reviewed it uh, with very good things to say. And this is an Apple design chip for their products like their Macs and iPads. And it comes instead of them actually having to purchase Intel chips. And so this is an in-house design of theirs and it actually combines the components of a CPU, uh, the GPU, which is your graphics unit and RAM a few, a few other parts, it all combines it into a single chip, which is apparently quite fast and efficient. And so they've started to roll this out uh, late last year, early this year for some of their Apple products. And due to those really good reviews too, you've seen people upgrading older Mac and iPad models to these later, uh, these new designs with the M1 chip. And that obviously drives bigger sales. And I guess a final indicator from a global point of view in terms of overseas markets for Apple, the company posted 56% growth in sales in Europe and a remarkable 88% in China. And China one is good because the previous quarter they grew sales by 57%. So they were able to increase the amount that they're growing the sales into China, which is very often historically touted as a, a market that Apple has not penetrated 
at this stage because you know brands like Oppo and Huawei are the dominating brands among new uh, sales in China, uh, very much easily beating Apple. I think Apple's not even in the top three there. I think they're in the top five now, but definitely not in the top three. Um, but I guess continued growth and penetration into that market is good for Apple. And just like I mentioned Tesla share price, so year to date, uh, Apple shares are actually pretty flat year to date. So they're only up 1.5% for 2021 so far. Uh, finally, I'll touch on the results from Google. Uh, pretty Well, when we talk about Google, we, we, we sort of mean Alphabet, which is the holding company that sits above Google. So Alphabet... Uh, the parent company, they reported good numbers too and they actually beat uh, expectations on the market. And that's due to a few things. There's recovering ad revenue. So coming out of 2020 when uh, marketing and ad revenue was certainly cut by many companies around the world, that started to come back for Google, which is the <laughs> under undisputed king of surveillance capitalism. Um <laughs> And a couple of things to note about Google too, which you might not be aware of. One of their biggest uh, growth and revenue drivers these days also is their cloud or Google Cloud offering, uh, which is their offering to enterprise and business. It sort of also drives uh, collaboration tools in the workforce like Docs and, and Gmail and Calendar. So all those kind of product offering. I read here an estimate on Investopedia reporting on their quarterly saying that uh, at the end of 2020, Google Cloud had 9% of the global cloud market. Uh, it is still ranked behind, I know the best is Amazon Web Services. So they're ranked at number one and Microsoft or Microsoft Azure is ranked in at number two. So, and that, I mean, for those, both those companies, so I mean, so for Amazon, Microsoft and also Google, the cloud computing space is some of their biggest growth engines over the last few years, especially as companies look to upgrade their offering and upgrade their services to be on the cloud and to be online. They're picking up you know, picking up contracts with companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google. The other interesting thing about Google's reports were, and Bloomberg reported on this point first, I believe, um, according to the actual quarterlies, Google saved $268 million in expenses in the first quarter of 2021. And that's attributed to just the sheer cut down of costs related to travel and in-office in perks that they give to employees and entertainment and promotions. So, and And the Bloomberg article said, you know, as just a, thought experiment if you if you push that out as an annualized figure then they would have saved over a billion dollars across a year just due to the pandemic and them cutting back on things like well not that they they you know had much of a choice but just cutting down on things like travel and you know in office perks because people were working from home that was interesting because amazon reported something Similar, they actually reported, it was, I think it was across 2020, they reported $1 billion reduction in, in expenses just due to employee travel because employees can't travel. <laughs> so there's some of the unintended uh, good parts of a pandemic for these companies in terms of cost reductions. So that's a little bit on Google. 
I'm personally not too interested in Google from an investment thesis point of view, so I'm not going to go too much more into that. But that gives you an idea of how some of the biggest companies have reported during the week. We'll probably touch on a few more over the coming weeks as I play a little bit of catch up on some other interesting news. But that is all. That is a wrap for this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. You have been listening to episode 54, the Coffer edition. Thank you so much again for tuning in. As always, jump on your favorite podcast platform to give a rating and review. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think. Hope you have a great week wherever you are, whatever you're up to. My name is Dion. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers.